Alien Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and my favorite part of The Dying Swan is when the swan tells her father to go back to hell. My guest today is one half of the hosting duo behind Rosemary's Ladies, a comedy film podcast where two mythical bitches do witty retellings of horror movies, bad movies, and bad horror movies. It's Jen Dahlman. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me back. I am excited to be here and excited to expand my Star Trek horizons to something other than law in Star Trek. <laughs> uh, yes, it's it's great to have you back on the show. And if you've got any uh, legal opinions about uh, maybe people being dead or their estates or whatever, just, just let us know. <laughs> Today we'll be talking about CODA, the 15th episode of the third season of Star Trek Voyager. When Voyager premiered in 1995, it had its work cut out for it. It presented a bold new premise for a Star Trek series. It was tasked with returning the franchise to its spacefaring roots after the premiere of the space station-bound Deep Space Nine. It was the flagship show of parent studio Paramount's new network, UPN. It was the first Trek series to be co-created by a woman, writer-producer Jerry Taylor, and it featured the franchise's first female lead, Captain Catherine Janeway, as portrayed by American actress Kate Mulgrew. Trek doesn't always rise to every challenge, see Enterprise and over half of the Trek feature films, but with a strong series concept, strong writing, and an even stronger performance by series lead Mulgrew, Voyager took its place among the pantheon of vital and entertaining Trek series. But we'll talk about that a little later in the show. First, Jen, it's great to have you back on the show. You were on the show last year to talk about the legal realities of the Star Trek universe. And we talked about how you first got into Trek. Um, you told us about watching The Naked Time when you were very young mm -hmm. and how it affected you. And we're talking about uh, Voyager today. Are there any Voyager episodes that have affected you in a similar way to The Naked Time? Um, I don't think so. Voyager isn't one that... I'm I've actually been rewatching it. Mm -hmm. Um and it's I'm finding I haven't been uh, it's not one of my favorites even though like I re I've I had really fond memories of it. This was I actually I re like vaguely remember watching Voyager when I was like 6 probably mm. and it had ve like all I could remember was like all I remember is there's a holographic doctor yeah. um and then like this person and this person get together. And so I think Voyager was technically like the first Star Trek I actually watched. And rewatching it, I like, I'm only on season three. So it had like, this episode did actually line up pretty much perfectly which, with where I was at. Yeah. Um, and I got to be honest, season two, real rough. <laughs> that, that was, I. I went on Rotten Tomatoes to look at the scores for like all of the seasons because I was like, I'm, you know, season one was good. Season two, I am struggling. Yeah. And all of the seasons, like all six, all the six seasons other than season two have like 90 something or 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Season two has 33%. So I was like, okay, <laughs> I understand why I'm struggling now. Got yeah. through this. Now I'm on season three. I'm back in it. Okay. Um, but I don't, I did get a little emotional watching this one um, during yeah. Janeway's, you know, supposed funeral scene. Yeah, um, right. But I don't think I have the same sort of attachment to Voyager as I do to um, the original series. Voyager is funny because it, it does, uh, I think, fluctuate a little bit 
in quality and it definitely gets better as it continues but it, i don't think that it follows quite the same path that previous series tend to where it's like yeah okay the first season's kind of rough the second season maybe also is rough but starts to really pick up and then it like hits its stride in the third season and with just occasional sort of dips in quality it stays strong i've been doing a rewatch myself and i'm I'm getting near the end of the fifth season, and in the early part of it, I have a friend who has a Voyager podcast, and I would watch it for a while, then I'd like call him and be like, okay, when does it get good? <laughs> is, it, is it now, or when is it exactly? And he's like, oh, just keep watching, and then it would get good, and then it would sort of get bad again, and I'd call him again, and I'd go, is this it? Like, is it just bad from here on out, or does it come back? And he's like, no, you just got to keep watching. It starts to pick up. There are, yeah, there are definitely fluctuations in the quality, and I, I didn't remember Kess at all, and <laughs> I guess I understand why, because I'm not really enjoying her. Yeah. Um, I, like, I'm just, I was like, I don't remember her at all, and I had to, there was an episode, I think it was the second season, where she basically goes through, like, um, their version of, I guess, I don't think it's not puberty, but like she's growing a sack on her back and she has to <laughs> yes. decide if she wants to have a child and yeah. she does with Neelix. And I was just like, I don't enjoy watching this. I am <laughs> not cool with this. <laughs> yeah. And she gets like X-Men powers at, at one point And uh, yeah, it's, um, it, we'll, we'll talk about uh, some of the ups and downs of Voyager a little later, but yeah, it's definitely a big swing from them for a character that only lives to be eight or nine and has right. crazy powers and, and all this other stuff. Um, and yeah, I think that they definitely sort of pulled the plug on the experiment about halfway through, but it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough to reinvent this thing, which is supposed to be, you know, you can do anything, but can you? Um, maybe only certain plots and certain characters work with uh, certain storylines, but right. we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. I think that. part of it with Kess is I didn't realize until like that episode that Kess and Neelix were in a relationship. I thought they, I was very much under the impression that it was like, they were they had like a father daughter relationship, so oh I was like, God. "Oh no, I am not cool with this." Like, yeah. I get that's how this relationship is, but yeah. that's not how I was interpreting it, and I'm yeah. upset. That's what you run into when you go, "Well, there's a character that has a shorter lifespan than somebody else." And it's like, okay, so she's like mature at like two and a half, right? Uh, I mean, and you're going to put her in a relationship. Started off that episode with like her second birthday. Yeah, I was like, this You're is right. just weird. I <laughs> really swinging a miss on this one, guys. Yeah, but then you could, you know, stretch that out and say, you know, if Vulcans live to be, you know, 150 or 180 or whatever, right. and they're dating a, a 25 year old human, uh, you know, it's equally as creepy potentially. That yeah, true. I've been listening to Rosemary's Ladies uh, a lot, and I've really been enjoying it. And horror movies, I think. Speaking of rough content, uh, by definition, deal with some rough content. Is there any mm -hmm. movie or type of movie that you guys would never do on the show? Oh, I don't know. I guess maybe th like, I guess horror wise, things we probably wouldn't do is uh, things that might be just too graphic and upsetting for either us or the audience members to watch. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about you know, like there, the Green Inferno or something like that. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's like a gore doesn't really bother me, but like um, 
the movie Cannibal Holocaust is supposed <laughs> to be one of the most like yeah like upsetting and disgusting and horrible like movies that was ever made. So I'm not sure if we'll ever do that one just because maybe even it like we might be able to sit through it, but I don't know if our audience would be able to sit through it or if they'd enjoy it. I was, we were um, on another show of, of mine, uh, Just Enough Trope, we were watching um, Wes Craven films, um, sort of in memoriam after he died. And I really like Wes Craven. I, I like a lot of his work, but we watched Last House on the Left. And I know mm. it's considered to be a classic, but it was, it was rough. It was really tough to get through. Like, I really struggled to find any, like, artistic merit in this just really just horrible, terrible film. Yeah, there there are definitely some that, like, they definitely come across as more exploitation mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and sort of, it's movies that are, like, just scary for the sake of, like, shocking you and upsetting you, I don't think are that interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if we'll ever do Last House on the Left, just because there it's, it is very stressful, like, especially, like, you know, seeing, as a woman, seeing other women, like, put in uh, very dangerous and violent situations. Yeah. Like, it's, it, it can definitely be hard to watch. Yeah, it, um, I guess they're not all Jason punching a guy's head into a dumpster. Uh, fun classic, time classic. Films. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of movies, uh, movies go bye-bye right now because of the coronavirus. And uh, some some people are projecting that's a huge problem for the business. I mean, obviously, the last two weekends or so, there's been box office zero returns because mm-hmm. theaters are closed. And a lot of theater chains are in trouble. And of course, entire major releases are being delayed or canceled. And it occurs to me, though, that a lot of horror films, especially films in the Blumhouse model, that is like low-budgeted uh, digital video productions, might do okay because they could see a lot of success by releasing straight to VOD, which is something a lot of studios are exploring right now. A lot of horror features already seem streamlined for digital release. Yeah, I, I'm, I'd be interested to see what, like, I can't remember what horror movies were supposed to be coming out. Um, but we're kind of out of like what's considered the dump month. So like January and September are movies that maybe didn't do super well with test audiences. So they kind of like, well, we'll just put them in in there and hopefully we won't lose as much money. Um, so we're kind of out of that time. Um, but I, I do think that like horror movies are ones where people like, being able to watch them in their own homes. Um, so I, I'm interested to see like what horror movies w- would be coming out and if they will make a jump to that, because I think part of the problem is no one knows how long this is going to last. And yeah. you might have to make a call that like, well, we're going to, we can delay for two weeks and hope that, you know, in two weeks, everything will be mostly back to normal. Movie theaters will open up and we can re-release. But that also means that you're going to be competing with maybe, you know, if three weeks of movies got delayed everyone's, and everyone tries to release theirs on the same day, then you're competing with three times as many movies. <laughs> or you could say, well, we'll just, we might have to take the L a little bit on, like, box office and go straight to VOD. I mean... I think Disney fast-tracked Frozen 2 from theaters, mm-hmm. like, really quickly. Yeah. Because um, that's on Disney Plus now. So, 
And I'm sure they're playing that waiting game too, because I got to tell you, like Mulan and say Black Widow both showing up on Disney Plus, like I would reactivate my Disney Plus subscription. Oh yeah, I think, and I think that's something they're probably discussing because, like, oh yeah, if I mean, even if I think it's they're kind of playing it interesting now. So like Birds of Prey is out now, but you can't rent it; you can only buy it. Oh, okay. So they, you know. It's twenty dollars to buy, but instead of like a ten dollar ticket, so the you know it's not like okay, well we're gonna get four dollars from each household for renting it. It's hmm. they're gonna pay twenty dollars and we're gonna and they're gonna buy it, but we'll right. still get twenty dollars from them. Huh? And well, so hmm, that's a totally new equation then in sort of the cinema business because you know two people, you and your significant other, go and see a movie. At 20 bucks. And in right. this case, you get to see it on your big screen TV and you get to keep it forever. But what's the value of the theatrical experience? And of course, theaters are getting cut right out of this. There's no cut for them at all. So that's mm-hmm. interesting math. Well, and I'm really disappointed because I loved A Quiet Place and A Quiet mm. Place 2 was supposed to come out last week. Yeah. Um, and it hasn't. It looks like The Platform, that one just came out on Netflix uh, I'm not sure if that one was supposed to be put out in theaters, though. Right. New Mutants, I think, was. Um, oh God, will we ever a... see that movie? <laughs> I I was I'm so sad every time it gets delayed. Like I think that movie's just cursed. I remember seeing a trailer for it like two two and a years half ago, years yeah. ago. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm super excited. Like I love Maisie Williams. You know, I love New Mutants. Like this is really exciting. Um. <laughs> And then a year later, still doesn't come out. Year later, still doesn't come out. It's in this movie. I think that movie's cursed. <laughs> Somebody bioengineered the uh, coronavirus to keep that thing from coming out. I think. I, yeah, it's just like, oh man, this maybe it's just really bad. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, is that uh, with all this uh, hullabaloo and it finally uh, securing a release date, they said that they had like scrapped a lot of the reshoots and stuff. You know when. Um, was it uh, who's the director? Uh, Josh. Um, Josh Boone. Boone, yeah, not Josh, not Josh Trank. Josh Boone <laughs> uh, had said that they had wanted to reshoot a lot of stuff, and it was kind of taken out of his hands and recast some things. And then I guess they dropped a lot of that, and they're like, "Screw it, we're just going to release it." Mm-hmm. And so now we're not even going to get like his original horror vision if we never see this film. So it's frustrating. Yeah, it's I. I hope we get it eventually. I'm worried it's just going to be one of those that's going to like sit on the shelf forever. And then it's going to, you know, something's going to happen to it. We're never going to get to see it. Like <laughs> just I the just... warehouse burns down that it's in. <laughs> you were talking on Rosemary's Ladies recently about your particular issue with the film Sweet Home Alabama. Do you want to elaborate <laughs> on that? Um, that's, that film is a real horror movie for me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I grew up in a very small town in Oklahoma and I haven't finished Sweet Home Alabama because it annoyed me so much. (laughs) Um, I guess that is a great fear of mine that like I'd go back home and, uh, be like, well, I guess I'm just stuck here now. Cause I was like... This, you know, Reese Witherspoon's doing great. She's got this great job in New York or L.A. or wherever it was. She's got a, a boyfriend who then who becomes her fiance who loves her very much. 
I assume they somehow write him to be a jerk because otherwise, why would she get back with what's his face? Yeah. Her husband. Uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, so uh, I'll also say I grew up an hour away from the um, Joe Exotic, uh, like tiger zoo thing. So if you guys have oh. watched Tiger yeah. King, yeah. I grew up pretty close to there. Oh, man. <laughs> Okay, a little background then. A little background, yeah. I, I think I read an article or an essay a little while back about these like going home movies, like Sweet Home Alabama and Hope Floats, um, I don't know, Doc Hollywood or um, New in Town. I think Reese Witherspoon had another one called that was just called like Going Home or something like that. And they, they all have this like disingenuous theme of like, city folk just don't get it. They're running around, they're they're eating their goat cheese and they're working for the ACLU, right. but they need to just slow they're down. They're so fast all the time. They gotta go country. slow down. And, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, I think I that's a theme for like all the Hallmark movies too. Oh, it's yeah, that's like, right. High powered woman in the big city. Yeah. Um, with She's working for a nonprofit. Fiance. And yeah, yeah. Right. And she goes back to her small hometown. And realizes that she's in I'm gonna love have babies. with right. She's like, I just want to live in this small town. Screw my whole job that I worked my whole life for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, why did you choose this specific episode, Coda, to discuss today? Um, I I liked the sort of what felt like a horror movie aspect of this time loop and um, time loop dying, time loop dying. Um, I didn't realize that the time loop was kind of a red herring, so I was a little <laughs> yeah. disappointed 10 minutes in when they were just like throwing that out the window. That's not a thing. Time yeah. loop, that doesn't <laughs> matter. Because yeah. that was one of the things that did confuse me. Like, I get the whole plot of, well, should I just, should I save that for the end once we've discussed what the who the, you know, the villain, his evil motives, etc. I mean, it's not, it's not a secret. People, people have seen the episode. Okay. Um, yeah, so I like I understand his whole pl- his whole game of okay, I need her to agree. You know, I you yeah, know, she's wanting to agree to go to this afterlife place. Maybe it's not the afterlife, whatever. Ba- basically, into that big white thing. Yeah, and then she'll I'll feed on her consciousness. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, I get that. <laughs> but why did we spend ten minutes? Why did he need to put her through time loops? Yeah, that it is. It is a little weird, and we'll talk in a little bit about how this episode is is seems like a, a mishmash of kind of different ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is the only Star Trek episode where we see a captain throttled to death on screen. So I mean, that was it was kind of graphic. They come out of the gate, yeah, like ready to play as oh, yeah. far as the horror. They're coming in hot. Go. Yeah. <laughs> When I was a lad and Voyager was on, uh, I feel like we didn't like it all that much, like fans or the people that that I knew, my friends, because it wasn't, you know, because it wasn't TNG. And I think Mm -hmm. that that opinion has persisted for some as the years have gone on. But as younger viewers who grew up on the show, um, like people like yourself and and other people, um, as as they get older, I think the series has really begun to rise to prominence in Trek's history. There was an article a few years back when Disco was premiering uh, that showed that all of the, of all the streaming Trek series, Voyager far and away was the most rewatched series on Netflix and streaming services i mean i i do like voyager it's got like it's kind of an interesting i like the premise of we are 
you know, 75 years away from where we need to be, basically, and they're just yeah. trying to get home. Yeah. So I do think, like, it's it's been a while since they've had to do exploring, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, the, you know, the Alpha Quadrant, they've pretty much seen everything there so that now they're you know it's interesting to see them picked up and dropped into completely uncharted territory where everything is a potential threat they don't know any of the um you know any of the species out here any of the languages any of the customs like they're constantly in like at risk of running out of dilithium um and so i think that is one of the interesting things is it is a i do feel like the creators were like, what can we do to make this sort of interesting or to sort of take it back to where TOS was? Yeah, I think it gets kind of screwed too as a series because, it, you know, it was positioned in this place where, you know, this is the the first show on the UPN network and we're kind of going forward with this. It's a female captain, but it comes out at a time when I think Trek saturation or bad Trek saturation um, meant that people were like consciously decoupling, you know, from the franchise. So that mm-hmm. means like no, no Voyager movies or, or reboots. Um, you just kind of okay. Let's just keep moving uh, to something else. But you know, the story of these characters, you know, of course, lived on in video games. There's a lot of Voyager video games, and of course, in mm-hmm. the novels, um, particularly the novels by Kirsten Beyer. Uh, who is a writer and producer on Picard and Discovery now. So, like, the fans really kept this alive. And after 25 years, I think it's kind of coming back around and having its day. You know, the people that just did the DS9 documentary announced that they're going to do a Voyager documentary in the same vein, looking back at the history of the series. Yeah, and I I mean, I do think, like, Janeway is one of my favorite captains. I I do like her a lot. I think her her willingness to accept the... Um, Maki people like immediately and put them in positions of power when other people don't trust them yeah. I think is is and that's something that um, Bellana Torres sort of references in you know when they give their speeches about her is mm-hmm. you know she's she always she thinks the best in people and she she believes that they're like better than they think they are yeah and she sees their potential yeah her the way that she relates, there's a specific way that she relates to every crew member that I don't think that you see in like TNG, for example. Like Jordy LaForge like respects the hell out of Picard and looks up to him, but I don't think there's like a really special relationship between Picard and Jordy um, and some of the other characters on the show. But like Janeway is like a, a mentor, you know, a, a mother or a parent figure. Um, a hero and a leader to like, I think every everybody on the show has like a, a specific connection to her. And mm-hmm. of course it really comes out in that, in that funeral scene, which is, it's always fun on a sci-fi show that you can do things like, oh, let's kill somebody, see what everybody thinks about him and then we can just bring him back and it's no problem. Right. And I did like, one of the things I was thinking about is like, well, it's not even, this is a hallucination. So is this what she's thinking? <laughs> okay. Like, is this what, like, is she, this what she's imagining people no are saying about her? No wonder she was moved to cry. <laughs> she set like, this thing up for herself. Yeah. I mean, I would love, like, if I could imagine, like, if I imagined my funeral, I guess I would be enjoy seeing people, like, sob over me and be like, oh, Jen was just, she was so great. And I'd be like, you're right. I was great. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, it'd be even worse if your hallucination, like nobody showed up to your funeral. Yeah, <laughs> like when you I guess that really shows what you think about yourself. Came back like, to life, well, yeah, go talk to the counselor. Uh, well, we're uh, talking about the Voyager episode Coda, the 15th episode of the third season of Star Trek Voyager. It first aired on January 29th of 1997. It was written by Jerry Taylor. Jerry Taylor is a writer, executive producer, and is the co-creator of Star Trek Voyager. Her first writer-producer job in TV was on the series Quincy Emmy. She also wrote and produced on other 80s series like Blue Thunder, Magnum P.I., and Jake and the Fat Man. She became a supervising producer for the fourth season of TNG and eventually became an executive producer and showrunner for the show's seventh season. She then co-created Star Trek Voyager along with Rick Berman and Michael Piller, serving as an executive producer and writer on the series until her retirement in 1998. And she wrote 34 scripts in total on TNG, DS9, and Voyager combined. And she also wrote two Voyager novels. And she and Captain Janeway share the same birthplace, Bloomington, Indiana. The episode was directed by Nancy Malone, who was herself an actor and producer, as well as a director. Her TV acting career spanned four decades, and she directed over 30 episodes of TV, over three decades of her career as a director. In addition to CODA, she also directed the fourth season Voyager episode, Message in a Bottle. The start date for this episode is 505-18.6, and your assignment, Jen, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of CODA. Janeway dies in a time loop... JK, it's a hallucination caused by an alien to trick her into going with him. She figures it out. That was 26. <laughs> What's that? So You're I'm sorry. <laughs> I was counting. To go into a uh, demon's belly or something like that. We never really mm-hmm. can find out who this guy is. It was it was very vague on who he is, where he came from, what the species is, why they need her to go willingly. I would have liked more. And inf- I feel like they could have, if they had maybe done two separate episodes, like one that where it's just time loops, mm. um, and one where it's like more about like why he needs her to go willingly or something like that. Oh, okay, you know that yeah. would have been interesting. Yeah, there's definitely enough premises. I mean, there's hats on top of hats in this episode. You might have been able mm-hmm. to sort of break it out into two like that. If you're going to kill your captain, then let's you know let's go the whole way. Um, right. I feel like they maybe didn't trust that they could. They had enough to like get them through a 40 minute episode. But one of the things I noticed is like, so they I mean they die and then like Chakotay and Janeway die yeah. and then come back in the time loop and with literally two seconds they're like oh time loop yeah like <laughs> yeah. they figure that out so fast i was like i mean i guess they've had that I, class at the academy you know, right <laughs> <laughs> they they must have because they immediately are like look at each other and like yep time loop all right let's get on this yeah <laughs> i kind of like the vagueness of the whole uh, demon guy though because it's i, I don't know like trek has i, I trek rarely does horror or ghosty stuff and when it does it's like sub rosa or something like that and Mm so i I, it's tough because it's really tough to do a ghost story on star trek because you just go is it a ghost tricorder no it's photonic energy or something like that yeah they have too much information and it's a scientific setting but there are creatures and, and aliens that we don't know enough about and that makes them kind of scary and mysterious so i i do wish that they had um come back to this guy because when you think about it we don't know if these aliens just exist on this planet 
or if they picked this up somewhere in the Delta Quadrant or if right. he's even gone. Like, will he every time that she is close to death in her life, this guy will be like, hey, what's up? I'm still waiting for you to come to the demon deli so we well, can eat you. That's what he says at the, at the very end. He's yeah. like, anytime you're close to death, I'll be there and like, we'll you're gonna go with me yeah um and he's like i'll find you again and you will nourish me for a you long time and i'm like me. that's creepy <laughs> I, I bring know. this guy back yeah yeah and so it's just like when you think about especially later in the in the show like some of the real big moves that she makes like we know that she's a real headstrong uh confident captain but some of the things that she does i kind of want it's like my headcanon like is this thing still gnawing at the edges of her sort of consciousness is she still thinking about we're all scared of death but is she scared of a future like with this guy yeah there's i mean there's not a lot of carryover it does feel very monster of the week yeah star trek and so there's sometimes there's a hard time of being like 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 in this episode they were like oh you caught the the phage and i was like that was something i didn't think was going to come back from season one there's there's an episode in the fifth season uh with george costanza where uh he's part of this uh it's called think tank he's part of this like think tank of like really smart guys and they just mention offhandedly like and we cured the phage and jenry's like oh oh okay you guys i mean we wouldn't we're never going back there so we wouldn't know about that but it's like okay it's a little uh continuity there uh here's some interesting facts from the making of the episode this episode was originally called fractals early in its development uh its actual title coda or tale in latin refers to the final passage of a musical piece but it can also refer to the finale of a ballet and speaking of ballet the dying swan that janeway reportedly performed on talent night i'd like to see that is a solo dance choreographed by Mikhail Fokin for the ballerina Anna Pavlova, who asked for a dance based on Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, The Dying Swan. It was first presented in 1905, and it went on to influence Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. The details of Janeway's life that we get in this episode, specifically the circumstances of her father's death and the fact that she has a sister, come directly from Jerry Taylor's 1996 novel Mosaic, which follows the pre-series life of young Captain Janeway. Jerry Taylor used the it's-all-a-dream nature of the episode to explore the relationship uh, between Janeway and her crew, and specifically Janeway and Chakotay, uh, without having it to change the nature of their bond, like we mentioned before. And according to an interview with Janeway actress Kate Mulgrew, the episode required a larger than usual amount of reshoots to get it just right. So I think even at this point, you know, while they were shooting the episode, they're like, is this too much? Are we, are we doing enough here? Should we just cram a bunch of things in? Mm-hmm. This is only the third time in the Trek franchise that we see someone perform CPR on someone. Uh, okay, McCoy, I, I noticed that and I was like, yeah. I think by this time they would have come up with like a better technique. Right, exactly. Yeah, like McCoy uses it in Star Trek VI on Chancellor Gorkin. Um, I think Bashir uses it uh, when they're in the past in the uh, episode's uh, past tense on Gabriel Bell. And then Janeway herself will use it again on a crew member in the fourth season episode, Scientific Method. But yeah, usually they're only ever using that thing that never works, <laughs> the thing that they put <laughs> on people's forehead. And whenever you've got that on your head, it's like, well, that person's dead. That's, that, that thing never works. I feel like sometimes in like these so like science fiction movies set in the future, they can't they just can't figure out like what 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 can be more 
advanced than CPR. Like one of the things we talked about in Event Horizon is like, you know, this it's the year like 2042. They've invented deep space travel right. and miniature artificial black holes. And yet when they like go check out the captain's log, it's all stored on CDs. We're like... <laughs> yeah. okay so you just got you guys just couldn't like i and i mean the movie came out in like 1997 so i guess that was like you know before ipods and stuff it's just interesting to see like oh this is nobody thought like we advanced farther than cds and cpr like this is where this yeah. is the height <laughs> yeah wireless transmission of data was completely unthinkable every time they got to work on data they always have to like rip a piece of his scalp off and then plug a cord into him when he would just right. have bluetooth or something right and right like, exactly also, the death of physical media nobody could ever see that coming you know picard wants to listen to uh, Berlioz or whatever, and he's got to plug in a little hologram disc, and it, there's just no way that it could be a file stored on a computer somewhere. It, it's just like it's something else that they, that they apparently couldn't conceive of. It's just like a life support machine. Like at one right. point, Janeway's vitals are falling, and it's like, okay, well now you put like you know the oxygen mask on her, and then you put the thing on, and you've got can't you have like a you give Neelix holographic lungs in one episode? Like couldn't you just like right. use force fields to like have some sort of implement that like yeah that goes like you put it on her chest and it does like it just does compressions for you and like right. pushes air into her lungs and that's it. Yeah, that's that's just too much. Uh, there's too much going on in this episode. She's just gonna have to die. I, yeah. I like also when it's like. Uh, I'm sorry, you've got the COVID-19 now, so we got to keep you in this thing. Uh, right. And then, <laughs> and then he works on it for a little while, and it's like, well, I couldn't think of anything, so you got to die now. Do all sick bays have a suicide that button was... that just releases gas into the thing? <laughs> I don't know. That was, like, really dark. Yeah. And I was – and she, but that was also one of the things that they never kind of – she didn't really reference it ever again, like – Hey, hey, doctor, do, I think we need to talk about um, how your plan of someone gets phage is to kill them. Yeah. But that's also maybe, maybe that's what she thinks about the doctor. Like, maybe I'd be interested to see, like, the hallucination, if it's coming from Janeway's perception of herself and the crew or if the of the aliens perceptions of what Janeway thinks about herself and the crew. Like mm. who's, who's the one who thinks the doctor's going to kill her, the alien or Janeway? Have you seen the movie enter the void? No. Uh, it's by Gaspar Noé. And ugh, it's, I can't describe the entire thing, but like a, a big part of it is like sort of a, uh, death vision, you know, a life flashing before your eyes thing. And oh, at one it's point, um, a Jacob's Ladder scenario. It's a Jacob's Ladder scenario, exactly. And similar to Jacob's Ladder and, and uh, this Enter the Void, it po possibly the, it, it part of like the horrible thing is, and this could be the alien, is like him trying to drive her out. Of, maybe she could just stay in this death vision where she's experiencing things, but they want the visions to be bad to kind of drive her to like, I got to, go into the light if it's going to be like th these horrible scenarios where I'm being throttled to death and the doctor is, is gassing right. me and stuff like that. When she wakes up from her Wizard of Oz thing, it's like, and you were there and you tried to kill me. <laughs> right. Talk about you that. tried to kill me and um, you gave me a nice speech. And <laughs> like, I, I, I like the, that Kess was able to sense her. And then I was kind of disappointed that that ended up going nowhere. Yeah. Um, but it's also but a disappointment like, for, for Janeway watching it. It's like, yes, wait. 
what? No, you could totally say right. Like I kept expecting them to find her, and then when um, Kess left and Tuvok sort of d- did like a you know additional captain's log, and he's like, "Let the record show that um, you know we we were unable to contact <laughs> yeah, Captain yeah. Janeway, and I've lost a very good friend." I was like, "Oh, no, like, not you, is... <laughs> Tuvok." <laughs> <laughs> Tuvok. <laughs> Once Tuvok starts getting emotional, it's it's all gone. Like, yeah. it's, I'm just sad. All of that makes sense in this nightmare hallucination scenario. But the, yeah, the time loop still, mm-hmm. uh, I don't really know. I did think that this was going to be closer to um, the movie Happy Death Day. Have you seen mm. that? Yeah. So, yeah. So I thought it was going, this was going to be like, um, you know, she, in the movie Happy Death Day, the main character keeps getting killed and then waking up um, and having to keep like reliving the day in her death and has to basically figure out who's killing her and then it's sort of an additional thing on top of that is she is slowly dying from the injuries she's receiving right. you know she's so she, like she doesn't have that and like a million it's not like groundhog day where he can just keep you know coming back a million times she only has you know 50 times or 100 times before she actually dies right, right. um and so i i thought it was kind of gonna go that way but then like i, I said earlier kind of after 10 minutes and you know, three rounds of the time loop, they're just like, yeah, we're done with this. <laughs> yeah, right. And I don't even know what they would have done, like if they would have um, set up that if she did do something right or, or made some kind of choice or was able to contact somebody, they would have brought her back. It's just, yeah, we're just kind of doing this for a little while. Right, because one of the things they talk about is after, um, like, there, I, mean, I think it's this, like the second time loop, the... Or maybe the third one, the um, Vidian ship that's chasing them just disappears. Right. And that's never mentioned again. And they're like, okay, there's a big white thing. Um, they, maybe that's causing it. We should go into it. No. And so that made me think, like, maybe Chakotay at that point was the... Um, was the alien because Chakotay was the one being like, oh yeah, we need to go into that white light. Like that's definitely what's causing it. We got to go there. And she again was like, nope, nope, we're not doing that. Yeah. That's just another kind of tactic, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then when they get back to the ship, Chakotay's like, oh, I don't remember a time loop. Yeah. What are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. I don't remember a time loop. And so maybe, (laughs) I guess if maybe he needs her to go into the light now that i'm kind of ta- thinking about this out loud the only way to sort of rest she needs to die right or maybe maybe he thinks that would help her go into the light is if she thinks she's dying so he needs the doctor to kill her so she can die and be more open to moving on right since she already wouldn't accept chakotay being like no no let's just go into the light yeah but unfortunately, that's this is just me making a lot of leaps and well, guesses no, and here. I think they're they're great guesses. It's just for some reason in this hallucination, the light represents you know her letting go and and uh, being feasted on. I guess. Right. Yeah, that's uh, those are all good uh, uh, theories um, that hopefully the <laughs> the uh, writing staff was thinking about when they were making this. Right. Hopefully, the, but who knows? Just like, yeah, maybe this will come across. <laughs> yeah, light. You know, light, light. Uh, let's talk about the guest stars in the episode. There's really only one. Uh, Len Carriou appears in the episode as Vice Admiral Edward Janeway. Carriou has a long and impressive career in film and television. Uh, his first role was in the 1963 TV series Quest, and he can be seen today on the CBS series Blue Blood. 
Bloods. He's had many roles in between. He's got a, he got a start in theater at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in the early 60s, and he became a member of the nascent Guthrie Theater Company in the 60s and 70s. He also performed often on Broadway. He originated the role of Sweeney Todd in the 1979 Stephen Sondheim musical, for which he won the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Musical. And his credits go on and on. Some of the films he's appeared in include Executive Decision, 13 Days, Flags of Our Fathers, and The Recent Prisoners. And I want to talk for just a little bit about the star, star of this episode, and of course the series, Kate Mulgrew. She's a Golden Globe and Emmy-nominated actress. She's also won a Critics' Choice Award, a Saturn Award, and three SAG Awards for her work. Her first big role was playing Mary Ryan on Ryan's Hope in the mid-70s. She went on to movie and TV appearances on shows like Cheers, uh, the movie Throw Mama from the Train, and Murphy Brown. Her first movie role was playing opposite Richard Burton in the 1981 film Love Spell. She was cast in the role of Janeway. Initially, the character was named Elizabeth Janeway. After the first choice for the role, actress Genevieve Bujol left the series during the filming of the pilot. The character's first name was changed to Catherine to honor the actress's Irish-American heritage. After Voyager, she went on to additional TV appearances and voiceover work, as well as appearing in Equus on Broadway in 2008. She also had a recurring role in the Adult Swim series, NTSF SDSUV, and she played Galena Red Reznikov in all seven seasons of the Netflix series Orange is the New Black. And also something that I think is always really great um, for Star Trek stars is that she's uh, active in the community. You know, she Mm -hmm. attends a lot of cons and does appearances and uh, is always warm with fans. And, you know, you don't have to do that. (laughs) There's I mean, as Avery Brooks has proved, you can just check out people and just not be a part of that. But she's always uh, stayed within the community. And I think that's really great. Yeah. And I think I think the fact that she doesn't have like. You know, she's maybe sort of not exactly been typecast, but this is really the role that people will always associate her with. Yeah. And yet she doesn't have any sort of resentment towards that. And she's just happy to like, you know, be like you said, be a part of the community. It's always like it's always nice to see, especially because I think Star Trek fans are are so very loyal and very like always excited yeah and so when you when you have um a an actor who maybe doesn't want to be a part of the the fandom as much it is kind of disappointing and a little hurtful because you've spent so much of your life looking up to these people as like (laughs) this is like a hero to me yeah 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 no kidding um, I read an interview with her where she was really, I think she was still on the show, but she was really sanguine about sort of making that choice and the fact that there's a lot of positives because this is going to, this is great for my career. It's a great role. And then a slight negative is people might, you know, typecast you as Catherine Janeway, but it's such an easy decision to make because of how great the fans are. And like you said, there's just so much warmth. Like all you have to do is just make that deal, you know? Yes. Love me. Go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which for an actor, I mean, is is an easy choice to make, I think. Um, it took a while for me and essentially a complete rewatch of the series, but I think I've completed my transformation to a full Janeway man. I think I'm all in on Janeway and Voyager. You're all in. <laughs> at this point, yeah. As somebody who resisted it for years, and I guess when I think about that article that I cited before, I'm one of the people that's contributing to those stats. Uh, it's been a great way for me to rediscover the series um, having missed a lot of it, just because I was like, I don't know if I'm going to really like watch Voyager. Um, I remember when I remember before it came on, and um, 
I think I was in my first year of college and I, there was a guy who wrote a book about Star Trek. Um, it was the nitpickers guide to Star Trek. And he lived in the same city as my college and he did a signing at the school. And I remember having the conversation with him and him telling me about like this new series that they were going to do. And it's going to be great because it's going to be all about the fact that the ship's trapped in the Delta Quadrant. And it's going to be tough. They're not going to have like resources and resupplies. And, mm-hmm. and they're going to have to really fight to to get home. And thinking that was a great premise. And then watching the show and being like, no, they're not really doing that premise all that much. And kind of drifting away. And kind of just kind of walking out of Star Trek fandom after that. Not really getting into Enterprise and just sort of only watching the movies from there on and being able to rediscover it on streaming services has been really great. Yeah, I I am glad that pretty much all of the Star Trek is on streaming because it's it just makes it so much easier to binge watch it, especially being home so much now. I <laughs> yeah. really don't have yeah. any any excuse. Yeah. Something that I always thought of as a weakness of the show is now something that I consider a strength. And that's the way that Voyager references earlier Trek in a lot of its storylines. You know, I kind of think of Voyager as like the first Star Trek fanfic series. And I, mm-hmm. I mean that in a good way. Like you've got TOS, you've got TNG, which kind of began as more TOS, but became an evolution of the premise. Um, DS9 is a kid doing its own thing. And then Voyager is a show that basically has the same setting as TOS and TNG, but it's got a twist. And now it's got 25 years of previous Trek to draw on. And when you go through the seasons of Voyager, you can kind of go, it's a TNG plot, TNG plot, TOS plot, merge with the DS9 plot, TNG plot. And that used to really frustrate me. But now I'm starting to see the ways that Voyager would take a TNG idea and go a different way with it and sort of refine the formula. One of the episodes I saw recently was... um, there's like a mind virus that Tuvok has that's making him have like mm-hmm. a fake memory. Yeah. And they have to go back and try to figure out where this memory is coming from. Well, they go back to when he was on um, a ship that was captained by Sulu. And right. they have to go <laughs> yeah. like rescue Kirk and Spock, who don't make an appearance. But it did, it, it, it part of it was hard to kind of determine like, are you trying to. Like, make me be like, oh, I remember that. Oh, I now I like this. Yeah. And how much of it is like, oh, no, like, we're trying to, we're, we're trying to do a good job of sort of integrating, you know, these, like, there are so many different sort of Star Trek series, and we're trying to make sure that they're integrated well yeah. together. So I think, and I... I'll, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they're trying to integrate them together. Yeah, and I think that that kind of integration is is well i mean it's i think it's necessary it's kind of become like the only thing on offer now with (laughs) discovery a series that's set in the tos era and picard literally taking you know a character from the previous series but something else that voyager got really good at was just starting an episode in the middle of what's going on like just doing a total immediate rest thing and not not necessarily doing a 72 hours earlier thing, which I'll never forgive BSG for spreading to every genre show. It'll start out with, you, you're the killer? 72 hours earlier. And then we just backtrack oh, yes. all the way. Yeah. <laughs> Star Trek tends to be very straightforward and linear in its presentation because it's it's literally the log of their adventures, you know, Captain's mm-hmm. Log. But a lot of Voyager episodes will just start, bam, okay, half the ship's been turned to jello and we're already having to deal with this. 
Well, and that was kind of how this one started. Like, they're just, Neelix and Janeway are, like, already walking together, already, like, in the middle of a conversation, just being like, oh, yeah, I mean, to keep Tuvok away next time we, like, <laughs> next time we do the night. thing. And I'm like, what thing are you doing? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talent Night is a, is a great response to uh, to coronavirus uh, <laughs> confinement, too. <laughs> right. As long as we're all doing it on the uh, view screens. Um. And they're always, you know, they're always flying away from whatever they encounter. So you have to do these just start in the middle situations. You can't open up and say, well, you know, you all know about the Romulans and we've had problems with them. So now we're going to do this. Like they're always, there's no established antagonists. And even when you do establish one like the Kazon, they're in the rearview mirror. Like they're, they're getting out of there. They're, they're always heading in one direction. The landscape is always changing outside the window. So that's a real limitation on the show. And I think just throwing the audience into the next crisis is a, is a great way to deal with it. Yeah. I mean, just speaking of the Kazon, I think they were a very <laughs> disappointing villain. And that's, I mean, I think part of the reason season two really oh, was a struggle oh for me just because they were, you know, they were the, the main villain it was like in um tng when i think they season one when they were like let's make the ferengi the main villain yeah, and then yeah. fortunately quickly realized like that's, okay this is not going well yeah the kazan are the season one ferengi of voyager that's perfect uh, they yeah they absolutely are i think it was like <laughs> i think it was more interesting like you know dealing with seska um like sort of betraying Chakotay and her friends and sort of buddying up with the Kazon, but they were just, just, uh, the fact that they, their whole goal was like, we don't have like advanced weaponry and advanced technology, which is why we need to get it from the Voyager. And yet somehow kept like kidnapping everyone, taking over the Voyager. Like, I was like, how do you guys well, obviously, you don't need this advanced weaponry because you guys seem to be doing completely fine without it. Something that goes with the kind of openness and altruism of Starfleet, I think, is a shade of gullibility a little bit, maybe. Mm-hmm. Because even into like, like I'm in season five, even in season five, some weird alien will show up and be like, hey, let's give you some help. And they're like, okay, yeah, let's take it. And then, you know, what happens, happens. We have an episode where they have to fight off these aliens and you'd think like i don't know maybe it's a good sign that it doesn't make them like hard living in the delta quadrant where everybody is just horrible to each other and every offered hand is just going to become a fist that hits you in the face but right i think i mean there are a couple episodes where i think that i like the episodes where the initially the people they're distrustful of are then become helpful like it was one of the i think season one episodes they um somehow come into contact with i think a romulan uh Mm, just mm -hmm. scientist who like they're very distrustful of each other at first he wants some of their technology they don't want to give it to him and they eventually like end up working together and he like helps them out at risk of like you know, his his family being harmed and himself being killed by the Romulan government and, like, will take their letters to their family and send them to their family, you know, in f- 50 years or whatever, because there's also a weird time travel component yeah. with it. Um, 
And unfortunately, I think in the end, he, like, they find out, they look him up, and they find out that he died before he was able, like, before they um, yeah. went missing. But I, that was, like, I, I really like that sort of aspect when, you know, we have these, like, sort of what we consider traditional Star Trek villains. Yeah. Um, where they're able to sort of overcome their differences and, you know, see that not, uh, you know, not all Romulans are <laughs> yeah, evil hashtag. because that's like you know and you know there are good romulans and there are i would hope good cardassians you know yeah i don't and the kid well <laughs> we're still looking for one but yeah the uh the kicker in that episode too is that it's it's tuvok who knows that basically the entire time because mm-hmm. I think, like, halfway through the episode, they go, okay, this is, like, Romulan, you know, uh, subcommander so-and-so. Uh, go check up on him, Tuvok. And he does. And then mm-hmm. they go through the rest of the episode, and they have this guy. They're talking to this guy. They beam him back, and they're like, well, I can't wait for this to take off. And Tuvok's like, bad news. Uh, that guy dies. <laughs> he dies in this year. I knew. I, I couldn't tell you because mm-hmm. it would be breaking the temporal prime directive if we did. And there's this great theme that gets, again, explored a little bit better in Battlestar Galactica, but also in mm-hmm. Voyager about being desperate and having rules for yourself and and being tempted to break the rules and, and doing it. Not always not breaking the rules, like definitely breaking the rules sometimes. And well, what, I mean, especially in TOS, they're breaking the prime directive well, yeah. constantly, <laughs> yeah. and in TNG, like yeah. they're breaking it constantly. But it's it's TNG that really like set codified those rules and set them up. Um, you know, TOS was still sort of like a wild westy kind of era, mm-hmm. but like yeah, Janeway breaks the prime directive a million times. But then it's the same thing that like Adama is, is always they're always he's always running up against. So so and so did something, and what the military code of justice says is that we put one in this guy's forehead and shoot him on an airlock. And Adama has to say, we're not going to do that because we just can't be that. We can't be that <laughs> that's way. That's a good Edward James Olmos impression. <laughs> do your job. Yeah. We can't do that anymore because we're all that's left. You know, things have to change right. because of our circumstances. And I think that Janeway and crew run into that quite a bit. Yeah. I think, yeah, the idea of what's, uh, what's the law and what's right becomes much more sort of muddied and gray when – there are only a few of you and your situation is so dire and you, you're not in a situation where you can just go by the letter of the law. You kind of have to go by the spirit of the law. Yeah. And even then sometimes you have to be even more like liberal with your, you know, how you want to maybe interpret the law. Like um, I can't remember his name, Brad, Brad Dorif who played Wormtongue mm-hmm. in Lord of the Rings. I really enjoyed his character and that he kept coming back a couple times mm-hmm. as he was a, a Maquis soldier who was, I think, like a murderer. Yeah. And they were like, well, normally, like, I mean, what, what are we going to do with him? Like, we can't just, what are we going to do? We're going to keep him in the brig for the next 70 years? Yeah, it's just, well, go to your room yeah. forever. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, not really related to that, but I recently watched the episode where, you know, the the Kazon have somehow taken over the Voyager. Everyone's screwed. um, And the only one left is the uh, uh, Brad Dorif and the um, Doctor. And Brad Dorif has to, you know, despite the fact that he spent two years working to overcome these murderous impulses, has to, like, (laughs) kill people. And he's extremely upset and emotional by that. And... So, you know, even though, yes, murder is wrong and he's he's a convicted murderer, 
sort of, but he has to kill people because it's the right thing to <laughs> Start do. killing Killy, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I also, I love the fact that, you know, in that Voyager, or in the uh, Romulan episode, you know, Tuvok is the guy that keeps everybody on track, and then a couple episodes later, they meet that race that has the trajector technology that could, like, beam them back to the Alpha Quadrant, mm-hmm. and Janeway says, no, we're not gonna, w- w- just forget it, we're not gonna use that. And then Tuvok ends up being the guy who's like, okay. Oh, yeah, he's like, yeah, let's, let's just go get give that him... stuff. Yeah. Yep. I did like, I do, one of the things I really like about Tuvok is um, his, like, just random moments where he speaks very fondly of his wife and children. Like, you know, we, everyone has this sort of notion of like, oh, Vulcans have no emotions. But like, even though he's not, like, mushy gushy like oh my god i miss my wife so much it's still like i i love my wife and i love my children and i miss them very much and there was an episode where he finds these children who are actually like they, they were their aging process is reversed basically so they're close to the end Benjamin of their life but he thinks yeah, they're yeah yeah and <laughs> and you know he he becomes very attached to them because of how much he misses his own children yeah yeah, I, I I liked the emotions uh, of that episode and the scenes between him and the kids, but the reveal at the end is just it's not just, good. No, it's just like, well, the episode's over. Uh, guess what? Uh, they they were old people the entire time, and we're just trying to yeah. help them. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, that's Voyager for you. It <laughs> so was, you win some, it you was lose a season some. two episode. Yeah. You know, right. A yeah. Rough. <laughs> uh, this episode itself is a hodgepodge of Trek elements. In fact, Jerry Taylor said of the episode that the original reason that they did it, the conception of the episode was they just wanted to get a bunch of ideas on that were sort of like on the cork board and they couldn't fit into anything else. And in this episode, I can see, you know, well, I mean, first of all, just film wise, it's a Groundhog Day. It's a Christmas Carol. It's a Patrick Swayze ghost. You know, it's a Wizard mm-hmm. of Oz, like we said. But it's got elements of a bunch of TNG episodes. Like there's a cause and effect in the beginning. Um, there's kind of a next phase thing when she's, you know, wandering around through the ship. and Nobody can see her. It's kind of her tapestry uh, episode as well. And this is crazy, but <laughs> this is my own personal crazy crackpot theory. Um, it's got a Times Arrow element to it as well. Because in Time's Arrow, there are aliens that feed on, like, the mental energy of dead people. They're kind of Star Trek souls. And they go back in time to stop these guys to Mark Twain's San Francisco. And they meet up with Mark Twain. And Mark Twain wrote Tom Sawyer in which a character attends their own funeral. So I don't know if I'm on to something or I need to Mm -hmm. be on something. (laughs) But there you go. So, yeah, it's just like they pushed all these things together and still came up with something that gives you this great look at uh, Janeway as a character, like facing, this is the passion of the Janeway, basically, like she's facing Mm -hmm. her end. Yeah, and one of the things I I did really like is, and I think, like we were talking about earlier, sort of about her her strong, like how strong of a leader and character she is, Mm. um, how adamant she is that like she's like i can't leave them yeah you know this is this is my crew this is my family and i'm i'm not ready to leave them because they need me which <laughs> that's just i mean you if you've trust them and we see how capable they are and you've trained them i mean probably they'd be okay but i just love the fact that right. part of her that's her her strength as a captain is her self-confidence and i think some of her best episodes are seeing 
that challenged, you know, um, some of her most compelling stories. She has to doubt herself. The episode Night uh, or the episode. There's a really weird episode. I think it's season three. Maybe you've already hit it in season two, but uh, Sacred Ground, where she has to like join a cult basically to get this cult to help Kess because Kess is dying. Mm-hmm. And she's, she thinks of it as from like the 24th century Federation citizen perspective of like, oh, it's how quaint. It's push-ups and prayer. No problem. And she really gets <laughs> thrown for a loop by like this sort of spiritual experience that she ends up going through that she's kind of powerless uh, during. Mm-hmm. You can't always do it the Jane way. <laughs> right. Sorry, Tuvix. <laughs> it's, it's my way or the Jane way. And it, when you think about, I don't know if you've ever seen like the YouTube footage of um, Genevieve Bujold uh, as the original Janeway, but it's completely different. Um, oh, I feel like I need to watch that yeah. now because she's a, a great actress. She's been in like some really great movies, but it's a totally different concept of the character. Like she would have, right. I think she would have not been the lead uh, the way that many or pretty much all Star Trek captains are of their series. Like. Mm-hmm. She would have been a, a more of a side or background character and having Kate Mulgrew just step in and be like, go back to hell, coward. Like, that's that's really that was. Yeah, that was a, a good line. Of like, <laughs> she's like, I'll see you in hell, dad. Yeah, right. I know. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's also a thing where it's right after the funeral and the dad guy is like still trying to get her to go. And then at one point he's like, oh, little bird, you know, you always make it tough for yourself. And they, mm-hmm. there's no line. They just cut to Mulgrew, and she has this look on her face, like, "All right, asshole." Like, like just, just. <laughs> yes, she she looks at her dad's and is like, "I fucking hate you." Yeah, fake or no, the funeral gets me in this uh, in this oh, episode. Yeah. I got a little emotional. Yeah, and seeing the crew's reaction to her death, and seeing um, like Harry's you know story that he tells in his, his speech about her, her connection with Harry is something that I. I really enjoy and I keep coming back to um, it's they never really get into it, but he's her space mom. Like he's definitely oh, yeah. he's definitely answered like I I mom. I, I mean, ma'am to her at some <laughs> point uh, in the series. Um, I think she's a space mom to like a lot of people. Like she's sp- got to be space mom to Kess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kess's yeah. space dad. Yeah. One of the things I I was wondering about at the funeral, like. Like the doctor is the doctor there or is he not there or is he not allowed there because he killed Janeway? Um, they don't ever like there. I, I would have loved just one person being like, "Hey, doc, um, we did the autopsy. She didn't die of the phage. She died of this neurotoxin. A lot of nerve gas in her lungs. Knew anything yeah, about that? Yeah, what's up with that? <laughs> I don't think he had the emitter yet, so technically, I mean, he could only be on a little TV, I suppose. Hmm. But yeah, that would be uh, a little bit suspicious. <laughs> what do you, <laughs> as we wrap up here, I, I'd like to know, what do you think of Jane Coteway or, or whatever uh, the Jane Away, uh, Chicote, Chicote uh, couple name is? Do you, what do you think about that ship? Uh, um, I, thumbs down. Thumbs down. Okay. Thumbs down for me. I, but I like, I don't know. I don't, I don't ship it. Um, be, but that's, I think might be just because like, like we were talking about, Janeway, to me, Janeway is just everybody's mom. (laughs) And it's, I mean, I'm also thumbs down on Kess and Neelix, as I mentioned. Um, (laughs) Are there there any ships that you approve of? uh, I I like, um, because Bellana and Tom Paris, I like them. Yeah. I like their relationship. Um, But I, I'm, I think part, like, so 
she's the ship's mom and and i think part of it is she they're they're, she doesn't seem like a rule breaker and it does seem like a big infraction to be like i'm just gonna start going on holidays with my exo yeah like he replicates yeah, me a flower, a little... and then yeah, yeah, it's a little. And yeah, we're gonna and it go just for seems a moonlight like... sail, like all platonic work friends do. Right, and <sighs> especially like after, um, after Chakotay had to go through the whole thing with, okay, he was he was seeing Seska. She allegedly impregnated herself, um, to not to his knowledge or consent, right. though. And then, but then it actually wasn't his child, but then he kind of seems to have gotten over that very quickly. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think um, once, yeah, we once we find out the uh, Kazon are involved and then she just sort of dies somehow uh, in that episode, uh, we're just like, yeah, let's not continue this. Although, raising, Chakotay raising a, a son or a daughter could have, I think it was a son, um, could have been interesting on the show. We do get that later with Naomi Wildman, a character who... By all rights, I should hate, but I mm-hmm. I really like Naomi Wildman. Like she's written really well. Uh, Scarlett Palmer's the actress is is just a really good um, uh, child actress, and I like her connection with Seven. And yeah, that was a disaster averted. I mean, it, it makes sense that there have to be children. I think that's one of the things they talk about earlier on, where um, oh, yeah. Chakotay comes across two people, yeah. you know, just making out. And he's like, ask Jamie, he's like, do we need to, like, start a rule that says, like, no fraternization? And she's like, well, like, she's like, I'm not going to tell people, like, not to, like, see each other. Like, we're going to be on the ship for, like, a long time. And also, you know, there's, like, we're going to be in 40 years we're really not going to be able to like do this stuff we need to have someone who can take over our positions as crew of the ship and and that was something i wish they would have focused more on and maybe they will later like the idea that like i I guess maybe they don't if they see you know get back at the end they just keep shaving time off but the idea that they have to um like, because Chakotay's like, well, what kind of life are we subjecting their child, like our children, to if we're not having them because we want children, but because we need them to do a job? That doesn't come up as much as I'd like it to in the series, but in um, I think it's in Scorpion when they're they hit um, the Borg space basically, and they're like, do we do this? Like, should should we even try to do this? Uh, continue on, and Chakotay's like, we could just find a nice planet, you know, and just and just park it and just right. live out our lives. Maybe that's our destiny. Maybe we won't succeed. Maybe we're you know dooming future generations to having this, you know, just crappy life on this ship. Um, mm-hmm. And even though they don't really go all the way in on that, I like the fact that that still sort of exists at the edges of it. That's Trek's, it's Trek's problem, although it continues to be a problem because they've not done this now. And it's the it's the darkness or like the lack of darkness. You know, it's so positive and people get mad when you do something like have a mutiny in Discovery or have the world be not quite as bright and shiny as people want in Star Trek Picard. Um, there's just places that you can't go. And it's okay. There's other sci-fi series to tackle those darker things like, you know, Battlestar Galactica. But mm-hmm. I hate it when it you run up to – it runs up against the edge of where you think the drama should go. And it's like, well, yeah. we don't go there because this is Trek. But yeah, I think though, if they like, they can still, they could still have the discussion without making it Having dark. Do, it's just yeah. like, I think they would have, they should have either gone 
all the way or just not even brought it up. Like, <laughs> if you're not going to talk about it and discuss the implications of having children just to crew the ship, yeah. then, like, don't bring it up just to have a 60-second discussion about it, like, ev- like, every four seasons. Right. Yeah. We can get dark. They stole Neelix's lungs. We can do dark on this show. <laughs> right. Well, let's talk My Space Dad or Space Mom can beat up your respective Space Dad or Space Mom. Who's your favorite captain and why? I think I, Picard, probably. Yeah. I, But I do, the, re-watching Voyager is making me, like, realize how much I love Janeway. Because I do think, you know, one of the, I think, positives to Star Trek is that each captain is very different. And they have their own method of doing things and interacting with the crew. Yeah. But one of the, th- I think... You know, there has to be so much credit given to Patrick Stewart, who's just so succinct and eloquent in everything he does. Like, he can, you know, he's he's just reading sonnets online now for people <laughs> yeah. during the coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. And it's just amazing because there's just something about his voice and his presence that makes you feel like this guy knows what he is doing. And I trust him. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, when it, the things I like about Picard is that he, I, I feel like he knows what he's doing. And I I feel like he always has the best interests of his crew and heart. And I feel like he's kind of always got an ace up his sleeve. Like, he's, he's a little bit tricky. He's always got, like, a plan to get them out of a situation. Yeah. I think that post-Picard, every captain is a, an answer to Picard, basically. Like, mm-hmm. he shapes... Pretty much every captain that comes afterwards, although I think to the least degree, Janeway. I think Janeway is her own captain even more than Cisco or <laughs> Two-Fisted Archer is. Um, mm-hmm. And if and I've said this before on the show, but if anything, I think that she is a, a riff on on Kirk. I think that she is a um, more sort of more respectful, you know, more um, sort of balanced version of uh, James Kirk. Not quite the philosopher that that a Picard is, for instance, but somebody who hates bullies and hates bureaucracy and is willing to do like whatever she has to do, <laughs> including mm-hmm. including break the prime directive at a moment's notice uh, to get her right. And yeah, safety. and I think yeah, she will. You know, she'll break the prime directive to you know help her crew to help anyone. And I and I mean that's something that happens frequently in all of Star Trek. Yeah. Is you know the the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. You know, sometimes you have to break the prime directive to save, yeah. you know, a million people. Well, now that we reach the end of the show and owing to your prior service on the show, you'll receive a promotion to the rank of lieutenant junior grade. What department? <laughs> yeah, congratulations. What department on the ship would you work in? Oh, ooh, that's hard. Um, let's see. I... Uh... I feel like I might like engineering. You know, I'm. I don't think I should be a pilot. Like I have terrible depth perception. <laughs> um, I don't think I'd be that good at like medical stuff. Um, I guess. I mean, I'd probably be okay because like I've seen a lot of gore and that doesn't really bother <laughs> yeah, right. me. But I feel like <laughs> I would really enjoy being down in engineering and you know working with the the machine. Sure. We're not specifying an era here. Uh, so, you know, it could be, say, the 22nd century. Maybe as a side gig to your engineering thing, you could be programming mm-hmm. uh, movie night for the NX01 crew. Yeah, I, I mean, it would be interesting to do movie night for a bunch of different, um, like, 
you know, different uh, cultures and species. And I mean, if they're watching, like, I think it is interesting when they have to watch something that maybe we would like something that's that we know of, like Rosemary's Baby, where it's like, well, we're not watching anything from 500 years ago, though. So how like how was that preserved? Yeah, um, nobody actually knows. Uh, after World War III, they found like a vault or something that had like the ah uh, yes, of course, Paramount Library in it. Uh, or like you could watch like here's something fun. We're gonna watch a movie called Chef. Uh, but then you know Vulcans and maybe other species are uh, vegetarians, and so they just find the entire thing just brutal and horrible that they're uh, serving all this flesh to to people who are so happy to right. eat it. So yeah, I would imagine you have to do different like. I, I don't think you'd be able to find one movie that, like, every single person on this <laughs> ship would enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> Some people are just going to... Five different it. movie nights. Well, you can't please everybody. i just show them Pixar movies. That'll probably get the job done. Lieutenant Dahlman, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Um, you can find us at um, rosemarysladies.com. We're also on Instagram at Rosemary's Ladies Podcast or on Twitter at um, Ladies Rosemary. And um, we put out a new episode every Sunday. Okay, great. Thanks again for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevances until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh, man, now, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Who are you? <laughs> We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest star base, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You, you follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You, go f*** yourself.